in education, avoiding failure is more frequently the goal than achieving Mm. success. That was Larry. He's a bit quirky. He's a CEO, but not the annoying smug type that has 30-minute conversations about himself while you sip on your drink and wait for someone more interesting to come along. No, when I first spoke to him, he was pitching me a story about his nonprofit. But what I thought in our conversation was a story about a struggling innovator. Someone like many of our listeners who wanted to do well, but also do good. Today, we'll talk about his crazy career journey that took him from Pearson to farming to where he is today. With hopes that his story that doesn't have a perfect ending can motivate you on your own journey. Listeners, welcome to the Ed Surge On Air podcast. I'm your co-host, Jenny Abamu, and I think this will be an interesting conversation. Listeners, so we all know careers in education are not only in the classroom. There are tons of different opportunities in education spaces, and finding your own place can be a bit of a soul-searching slash soul-sucking journey. <laughs> Larry Singer is the CEO of Open Up Resources, a nonprofit developing digital K-12 curricula that's free for schools. But of course, he hasn't always had that job. In fact, he didn't even study education. His 30-year journey has taken him all over the place, from corporate education to now the nonprofit work that he does. So today we're going to talk about the defining moments that helped him find a career in education that he's happy with, with hopes that you listeners on your own career journeys can gain some perspective. Larry, welcome to the Ed Surge on Air podcast. It's good to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, Jenny. Excellent. So I just want to kind of start off by talking a little bit about your schooling, which I mean, is kind of crazy, but I think this is really cool because like many other people in the education space, you didn't study education. In 1975, according to your resume, you were studying at the University of Redlands in California and you got a BA in entrepreneurship. So what were you thinking at that time? Why entrepreneurship? It's interesting that you ask. So I went to a a college at the university called Johnston College, which had all narrative evaluations and negotiated class contract and was experimental learning. And I wanted a liberal arts degree that other people would think is a business degree. So uh, entrepreneurial studies, what we did things like I took physics one and two. And then the third class was Newton and Einstein. And why were they able to break out from all other physicists? And the same thing for every discipline in economics. I would do uh, micro and macroeconomics and then do Smith, Keynes, and Marx and say, how did the three of them break out? So not just in business, but what is it that allows people to get breakthroughs in the industries that they're working in or the disciplines that they're working? And that's what I wanted to study. Now, just to jolt our memory before my next question, I'm going to play a little clip from a 1984 uh, Apple convention where Steve Jobs introduces Apple's first personal computer. Good morning, and welcome to the second major Apple product event in less than 100 days. 
Now, this is around the same time that you just graduated from college. Were you influenced by things like Apple releasing their first personal computer and IBM uh, doing the same thing? Was it what, was this what influenced you to pursue entrepreneurship or even go into tech? And what also was it also a big time for entrepreneurship? It seems like the system was really shaking up there. It was. In fact, in education, there was a lot of experimentation going on, like the college I was at. And in industry, you saw titans of industry falling to smart, high potential young people with ideas. And kind of the bane of my existence in high school was being told, you have so much potential and all you have to do is work harder and study and do all your homework. And see, somehow these entrepreneurs seem like heroes to me, people who weren't following the rules, uh, but who were getting breakthroughs because of it. And so the question is, how do people who break rules also succeed? And that's to me what an entrepreneur was. Wow, that's really, that's so fascinating, kind of how those uh, characters and those figures were influencing, like, just what you were thinking about and what you were studying as an individual and how that's kind of shaped you in this sense. So you move from, you know, you worked, I know you worked at a computer company for a while, but then you entered, entered into Texas Instruments. Why going into the Texas Instruments background? What happened there? Well, it's interesting. I was with the very first software company in the world before TI, the very first one that wasn't a computer company, and uh, was like one of the first sales guys at a time when you, to get the job, you had to stay on the bar stool for the whole interview without falling off. There was no such thing as qualified people. And when I started in it, I start, we worked with people in every single industry, and it became clear to me that in public sector, in state and local government, in higher ed and in K-12, IT or computers had a very potentially different role. These were information industries that collected information about people and then gave services. And yet they were so far behind financial services and manufacturing and others in adopting technology that I persuaded the software company we should have a focus on something that I called SLED, state, local, and education which became a fairly standard thing in the tech industry, but we were the very first ones to do it. Uh, but the software company was not as into what I would call Maslow's hierarchy. In this space, you can't go after revenue. You have to go after fixing problems, and then the revenue comes. They write you checks of the biggest size, bigger than any other industry, if you have solutions, but you can't come to them without a solution. I loved that. It was just like what I was studying. And TI, who was making a fortune on speaking spells and other stuff, but not solutioning, not figuring out, you know, they, they had the calculators and people were buying them, but people didn't know why and how. And so I had an idea that we could start working with the educators and with the publishers of, of textbooks. And if we could integrate in calculator-based activities then it would improve the math. And then if that happened, people would buy more calculators. So start with the solution in education and public sector. And TI seemed like a place that had offerings that were waiting for solutions to be wrapped around them. So it was like the greatest place for me to go. What made you get, where did you get the idea from? I mean, like, where does that kind of idea come from? Like, where do you think, okay, I'm going to, these calculators can go to schools and we can, how, how did that even come to your mind? 
So this hippie school that I went to, everybody there majored in like transpersonal psychology. There had only been one business student ever before me, and it was Peter Cohen, who eventually became president of McGraw-Hill. So wow. both of us- <laughs> How <up> ironic. <laughs> well, you know, it, it seems like what a coincidence, except for we went to this hippie school where we were the only business guys where everyone else was trying to figure out how to do good in the world. Uh, how to save the environment, how to open the world, you know, end racism, how to open the world to gender issues. This is way, this is 30 years ago and then people weren't talking about gender issues. And so, you know, my mercenary entrepreneurial mind was infected with all these do-gooders. <laughs> and so uh, I was always trying to figure out how I can match my entrepreneurial ability to find things that will work, that people will be willing to pay for, and will fit into the way, the way they see the world with doing good. So if you can do good and do well at the same time, it's kind of the ultimate way to express your life. And so I was always trying to figure out how do you take the pieces that are sitting there? I'm not an inventor. I had so many friends who were engineers and super technologists, but I'm an exploiter. <laughs> you see these calculators doing really well couldn't they do more if you tied them to the education and if you did I'm called an opportunist you there you go I'm an opportunist <laughs> so when you were in Texas Instruments you stayed there for about seven years did you notice any evolutions happening I mean I know that that time period smart boards were coming into classrooms things like that were happening I think the first online school happened during that same time period um, it was founded what, what what kind of things that did you notice in the education space that kind of changed the way you were seeing uh, things and why did you end up leaving? You have to remember my point of view was IT, right? Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that was happening then is mainframes were giving way to client server computers. Now that might sound really esoteric, but a state government can afford to have a mainframe. A mm -hmm. school district can afford to have a server. Until that change the idea of IT working and information systems and computers for kids was impossible because that would mean giving up all the control to the state government or even the federal government. And the politics just wouldn't allow it. But client-server computing emerged during that time. And all of a sudden, you had people start dabbling in schools with what would we do if we could actually collect data about the kids, if we had information about how the test at the beginning of the year compared to the test at the end of the year, mm. and which teachers were getting the best results, and what are they doing differently. And all of a sudden, all of these solutions that every other industry was looking at became possible. So from where I was sitting, what was changing is that people in schools were no longer trying to implement the same model that they did in the 50s and 60s where almost all the kids went into domestic service or manufacturing or agriculture. And now everybody was talking about knowledge-based jobs. That was the other big thing that was happening then, mm -hmm. is as client-server came about, more information-oriented jobs became available in careers. And the thought that we need to change the way we prepare kids changed. And for me, the synergy between the 
tools of industry of IT being available in education and these new needs for knowledge-based jobs. And so education needed to change, mm -hmm. just created an opportunity that hadn't been there in 20 years. Everybody agreed there needed to be a change and it was somehow connected to this and no one could quite figure out how to do it. And 30 years later, we're struggling with that same exact issue. Even though there's a lot more IT, none of us feel like we're exploiting it completely to help kids. Well, that's why I have a job. So I'm looking to help people figure that out. Um, but yeah, uh, that's a fascinating point that you bring up. And I'm, but just for time's sake, I'm going to speed ahead and go to, you started working at Pearson. And uh, I'm curious how you, someone who's kind of like such a free thinker, and outside the box and thinking about entrepreneurship and all these things ended up at Pearson, who doesn't exactly have that reputation. It's a big corporate entity and it's so different. How did you end up at Pearson and how did, what was that journey? Because of that. I mean, yeah. honestly, while I majored in school in entrepreneurial studies, most of my career, except for one not-for-profit stint when I was working at Harvard, mm -hmm. most of my career I've worked at organizations with at least 40,000 employees. And so I've considered myself what I would describe as an entrepreneur. Hmm. How do you go into a state organization and instead of raising capital in the market, use budget resources to help the company understand what it really does? Hmm. So Pearson was, to me, a classic example. Like the old railroads didn't see themselves as transportation companies. They saw themselves as railroads, which is why they're not the big car companies and the auto companies, too. Hmm. I mean, then the airlines, they owned all transportation, but they didn't see themselves that way. Hmm. Pearson saw themselves as a textbook and testing company. Hmm. And it seemed that with education transforming and moving from a teacher-centric to a student-centric kind of model, and the promises of personalized learning and mastery-based progression that the adoption of technologies and adoption of standards provided, to me, it seemed like if they could expand their view and see themselves as an education company, which branding-wise they were. They were starting to call themselves the education company. Right. And they came to get me from Silicon Valley intentionally hmm. to do two things. One is to integrate the 14 K-12 units into one K-12 market-facing unit for all these acquisitions they had made. This, they had tried twice before to merge them and failed. And then the second thing was to turn them from a book publisher to a software publisher mm. to take advantage of these new capabilities. So when they said they wanted those two things, those things are big, innovative things. I thought they were really wanted them. <laughs> so I went there to do them and found out while they really wanted them, the culture really had very significant barriers. Hmm. Uh, to those countries. So let's let's talk about that a little bit because you 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 had a little bridge that you went through even after you left Pearson. You told me you went and started a farm for a minute and then kind of put your head. What was that process like? Kind of putting your head together and then saying, "Okay, where do I go next?" What was that process? So, like you said, I spent thirty years trying to introduce technology-based innovation to technology, and it felt like it was all leading up to this opportunity at Pearson, where I had an avenue to make a difference and the resources and all of that sort of thing. And it turned out that they weren't up to it. They they wanted to do it and just couldn't do it. And so I had a change of control of provision in my agreement and and they decided to reorganize and they wrote me a really big check that was big enough for me to buy a farm. And so I said, you know, I've done lots of good in my life. 
it's time for me to enjoy things. So I bought the farm. It couldn't have been six months later. I had hundred calls and says, how would you like to do it? You tried to do it, Pearson, without all the restrictions of a big environment and a not-for-profit world where doing good and doing right is your only goal, except you have to do it in a sustainable model. So they want a business. Hmm. Um, and it was just too good of an offer. I mean, it, I, I was so peeved at the publishers who come out there and talk about being education companies, but shareholder value trumps all. And they didn't get the Maslow's hierarchy. If they would have paid attention, they would have gotten higher shareholder value. And instead, since I've left, the stocks have all crashed and we're growing at a ridiculous rate. And so the idea... Real quick, you said, you said this a few times and I want people to understand what you're saying. When you talk about the Maslow's hierarchy and what you're, what you're uh, talking about there, what, what do you mean that they don't get that? Like, what are they not getting? So in my view, the way Maslow's hierarchy works for these big corporations mm. is that if you focus on what your customer needs to be successful and you use the resources of your organization, focus squarely on meeting that need. And once you figure out how to do it, then you look at the business model that you implement so you can do it profitably uh, and at a good value to the end customer. Hmm. So these are the kind of the things that you're applying to open up resources now. Correct. Because you talked a little bit about Corporation does it backwards. How hmm. can we make money? There is an opportunity to make money. Hmm. How do we figure out a product to fit in that space? Right. Uh, you got to flip it. What do they need first and how do we satisfy it? Not what are they willing to spend money on and how can we get it? Hmm. Hmm. So moving to the from the corporate to the nonprofit world for you kind of gave you the opportunity to apply your skills, but also find a sustainable model in that space. Talk a little bit about that. That's right. So, so, so we have three primary goals. One is to have the highest quality curriculum as widely available as possible Mm -hmm. to as far as many kids, regardless of the resources, of their school district. So that's one. Mm -hmm. Two is that, um, we do so in a way that creates a self-sustaining business model for us, but also creates an ecosystem of authors and consultants who have the same motivations we do and that they can be self-sustaining. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that finally we do it in such a way with equitability, equ- equitable access as the key. Mm-hmm. We have ELL supports for English language learners because that's, that's the population that's in K-12 right now, that we have culturally relevant materials for people regardless of their ethnic background, and that social justice is a focus of what we're doing in addition to literacy and, and mathematics. And recently you guys just had a, an award that you won or, or like a recognition that you won. Can you talk about that a little bit and why that was important? Yeah, I mean, just like when I was at Texas Instruments and the Baldridge Award set criteria of how you think of quality. Ed reports has become like the Gartner group or good housekeeping uh, of the instructional resource market. And they define what good is. So what we did is we reverse engineer it. We thought their answer of what good was right. So how do we build a product that meets their criteria for excellence? And so we work with, we find the very best authors out there who understood what uh, we needed to do. And then we built a quality control process that's just like Silicon Valley's, just like we did at Texas Instruments for the Baldridge Award, a separate team who understood the objectives, 
who reviewed and gave recommendations back to the authors of what they needed to do in order to hit the right scores. Uh, so it wasn't just some esoteric in order to make it better, in order to make it better as defined by these metrics. And that's something in education, better is always fluffy. Uh, the standards and ed reports let us make better something clear. This is better <laughs> if it does this. So now you have, uh, you guys are in a lot of schools. You have uh, <coughs> these quality marks and you are sustainable. But being a CEO isn't always all rosy. What are some of the challenges that you guys are still working on? <laughs> It's it's almost never completely rosy. <laughs> so I would say one of the biggest challenges for most people is the team you have. And one thing in education that you don't worry about, you can attract brilliant, motivated, socially oriented people in this space. So that's just not the problem. The problem is funding. Uh, like anything else in government, you know, politicians, if you want to make a difference, you spend so much of your time fundraising. And the same is true in the not-for-profit space. We've had to raise about $16 million. By the end of this school year, we'll never need another dollar from philanthropy. We'll be completely self-sustaining. But because this is such a big year, we may need to spend $50 million on print before any we can invoice anybody so that we can ship them. And we only charge slight amount over cost. So we don't have big reserves. So going to funders for cash flow is the biggest issue. And frankly, the funders in the philanthropic space have the best of motivations, but there's a reason they haven't been able to make an impact. And it's because they simply don't have the same business orientation and this connection between solutions and a business model that implements them effectively. So continuously having to go, you know, coming up with an innovative idea and then go two steps back and explain mm. the basis for it and why you can't do what always has been done. And you would think, you know, all these people want to invest in innovation, but in education, Avoiding failure is more frequently the goal than achieving success because failure in a policy environment and a political environment carries such a heavy cost and sets you back so far. And if you succeed, you get an incremental improvement and, no, and you're only recognized begrudgingly and only by your peers, not by those people in the political world who would knock you. So trying to be pushing things forward and be innovative and trying new things in an environment that is so conservative. And the funders who saw such a backlash against things like uh, Common Core are so worried about appearances that somehow they missed the opportunities. So keeping that balance of pushing forward and satisfying those with the funds who are more conservative, who, who don't have the specific knowledge in business, who don't know how to create something that works, but they know good when they see it and they know important when they see it. So, so just before we close, I do want to kind of say, I want to, I want to have you kind of think and give our audience a response. So someone who wants to do good, who wants to be innovative, a lot of our listeners are like that, who want to, but also want something sustainable. How can they, or do you give them, as advice as they kind of map their own career journeys in education? Look for diversity of experiences. The, it, while it appears there's only one path, the, the way to grow is, first of all, don't try 
don't set a path and try and stay on it. Be open to opportunities as they come up and realize that you can kind of twist an opportunity to your own objectives. So set life goals, not career goals, uh, and then find the opportunities for career options to fit your life objectives is what I would say. Figure out who you are first. Uh, don't, they don't define you, you define you. Find the place where you fit. Well, thank you so much, Larry, for joining us for the podcast. I really appreciate having you on and sharing your story. That's the first time I've ever done that, Jenny. It's a pleasure. This has been the Ed Surge On Air podcast. This episode was produced and edited by me, Jenny Abamu, and you can give us a grade on the quality of this podcast by rating us on iTunes or sending an email to us at feedback at edsurge.com. You can also subscribe to us on your iPhone podcast app, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcast. We'll be back next week with more on the future of education.